Welcome to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, where we help business leaders and individual contributors with actionable insights to hit their number and figure out the nuances of truly operating a business globally today, squeezing the essence of the lessons learned from the planet's top tech leaders. This is your guide to joining the fast track to global market scaling. Welcome, I'm Ross Lauder, your host from Single Focus Talent, and I'm joined by our non-exec director, John Quigley, today. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Today's guest is Dunica Friel, VP of Sales at Reich. Welcome, Dunica. Hey, Ross. How you doing? Pretty well, pretty well. Gentlemen, thanks for joining the uh, podcast today. I'm excited to get started. What we're going to do is talk through three main aspects of being successful in software SaaS businesses in Ireland and in Europe as a greater context. We're going to talk through Dunnick's career and what he's been successful in achieving, how he's gone about doing that in the organizations he's been a part of. We're going to talk specifically about Reich as a market offering. And then more importantly, we're going to speak about Europe as a platform and how it is we leverage our unique place in the world to deliver for global business in the tech space. So welcome, Don Thank you for your time. We're looking forward to speaking to you and getting to the nitty gritty of success today. So maybe if you could just give us a flavor, walk us through your journey to date in your career, what brought you to where you are now, and what made you pick each kind of stage of that journey? Sure. Thanks very much, Ross. Delighted to be here. So Donica Friel, I'm currently the VP of sales for Reich, the project management software platform. A bit about myself, I have over 20 years of experience within the technology sector. It's kind of a a well-beaten path, right, within Dublin technology community, which is actually quite small when you break it down. But anyway, so I started off as an individual contributor in Dell, Dell Computers. I I actually started off there in their consumer sales. Then I moved into business sales, and I was actually working with the value-added resellers during the Dell Direct era, which was a great place to cut your teeth as an individual contributor. You did the well. exact you same role in that team myself. Right. Okay. Well, then you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. So there was a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of negotiating, shall we say, but thoroughly enjoyed it, loved it. I, I always kind of knew that sales was something that I was passionate about. It was the path that I wanted to take. I always kind of said, right, okay, you know, it, it wasn't something that I just kind of, you, you do find a lot of people kind of somewhat fall into sales I kind of made a conscious decision when I finished college that yes I wanted to get into technology sales for different reasons I like the you know I'm I'm pretty competitive by nature Mm -hmm. I like the fact that you're you're somewhat autonomous in relation to how successful you can be you can own your own success you can own your own paycheck to to a certain degree that all kind of appealed to me that was one of my questions, actually, you've just, you've just answered, because it, it's very interesting, right, the progression of, of, of a sales professional. You know, like nobody that's 17 or 18, you know, kind of goes to bed at night thinking, you know, I really want to get up tomorrow morning and sell the shit out of project management <laughs> software, right? So that's very interesting that that was a, an early decision for you to make, right? My, my own view is that, you know, we're not strong enough here in this country and many other countries, right, to intercept people at an earlier stage to tell them that sales and particularly technology sales, right, is a fantastic career for somebody to get after, you know. What drove that, though? You said you're competitive and was there anyone else in your family doing this kind of stuff? Was your dad 
kind of in sales or was it just something that you said, hold on a minute, I, I see one or two people making some good money here and I think that's what I want to do. What was the driver? I'm curious. Yeah, um, well, it was, certainly wasn't a family thing. I did actually, I, ha- I had an uncle who was in technology sales um, and he was absolutely a, you know, a guiding light for me. He was somebody who I very much valued his opinion. I did a ton of research about it as well. You know, I kind of, I like the interpersonal aspect. I've always been quite kind of outgoing person, which isn't always the best recipe for a good salesperson, by the way. But anyway, communication skills is probably one of my greatest assets. So I was keen to put that into play. Yeah, I, I like I, I in college, you know, I, I'm not the most academic, never have been. But uh, in college, I, I, I studied business management in, in DIT, came out of there with a the degree. And I kind of, you know, then I did the, the well-beaten path of heading off to Australia for a year. But, you know, it was, it was in Australia. Then I, I said, right, OK, I'm ready to come back to Ireland now and I'm ready to start working, start my professional career. I, I say I didn't just fall into sales, right? You know, I was, I was living in the, 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 on this, in the south side of Dublin at the time and Dell were hiring like mad at the time, right? In the old campus in Bray. And that was, you know, they, they actually had an open night and I went along to that and I got hired at that open night and then started. And it, like it, was, it was such a quick thing, right? I think, I, I, you know, the open night was on a Thursday and I started in a week's time within their consumer sales team. Do those techniques work anymore, do you think, kind of? what we call milk rounds and open nights and kind of recruitment drives like that. What, what, what do you think? Do you guys use them over there, Mike, as, yeah, as part we, of your armory? Yeah, we have done. And they have worked very well for us in the past, right? Particularly if you're looking to hire certain languages. What we have done is we might have a French evening with a bit of a French theme, right? Without getting too uh, stereotypical, right? <laughs> and that, because what you'll find as well within the tech kind of community in Dublin Everyone knows each other, and particularly like you know, because I've, I've got I've, I've got French guys on my team, right? I've actually an interesting fact is we've got about seven Brazilians in the Dublin office alone. Whenever we have a Portuguese or Spanish role that opens up, the, the amount of referrals these guys bring us in is incredible. Like I've spoken to some of the guys about this, and you know, and, and it's it's they have their own community. You know, there's a really strong Brazilian community within Dublin. And then you've got this kind of sub-community within there of tech workers, right? So there's absolutely, as you know yourselves, there's no better place to get, you know, high performers than a referral. Yeah, I've seen that myself. So for those Iberian countries selling into those countries is, I wouldn't say tricky. I, I would imagine though, right, if you're like any other technology company, right, they're not your top performing territories, are they? They're not, no. Okay. They're not, no. But I was just using, it was more the example. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. My top performing, the big hitters is like DAC in the UK. Germans in Dublin, quite difficult to hire. Yes. Um, at times, like, you know, like I'll give you the example, like Salesforce and LinkedIn, they've actually started recruiting directly from universities. Yes. In, in Germany for German speakers, for people. And they, what they'll do is they'll relocate these guys they bring them over, they'll set them up, they'll give them some, uh, you know, they'll set them up in an Airbnb for a couple of months until they find their feet, et cetera. And then they'll bring them in as SDRs, train them up, and, and they can, you, can move from, you can move from a university having not actually finished your exams, finish your exams, move to Dublin, 
and you can be in an AE position within two years. Yeah, absolutely. Just for the benefit of our listeners, DAX stands for D for Deutschland, A for Austria, and CH being the Swiss region, uh, the German-speaking part of Switzerland. I suppose I've had that experience very much so, where there's almost like this sweet spot of capturing those German speakers who are willing to move here uh, to Ireland to work in our tech sector before they settle down and have the responsibilities of a family and relationships, et cetera, that might tie them down a little bit more. So getting those kind of more senior mid-level and kind of field guys tends to be a, a much greater challenge. And um, it's kind of on a secondment, whereas they can have that experience when they're right out of college, come here, do something a little bit different and, and, and really put that on their CV or their profile. One of the things I certainly look for is have these guys done an internship or maybe a semester abroad in an English-speaking country. So I've hired some of my kind of best German speakers for some of my clients where they've gone to Australia for, you know, six or 12 months. They've gone to the States, they've gone to the UK, where they're not afraid to kind of jump in the deep end. And that's certainly been my experience. It's that kind of timing element in their life. And sometimes they'll stay here. I mean, they'll stay here and have a family here. I mean, that's also that's also been kind of my experience. But I suppose let's drill into that a little bit more. I suppose, would you share that experience? And moreover, I suppose, when you're interviewing those guys, what are you looking for in a rock star? Because these guys, let's say they're SDRs, they're, they're looking to qualify inbound leads for our listeners. You know, this is a kind of an entry level position where you're getting in leads that are maybe trial downloads or requests for more information. What is it, uh, Dunica, you're looking for? Like, what are the key triggers for that rock star profile? Let's say it's a German speaker. Yeah. So I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for drive. Okay. I want people who know exactly what they're getting into who know exactly what the role is, who know, have done a ton of research, have spoken to other people in the position, as okay. in the Dublin tech community. They understand the, you know, our company. They don't have to get really deep into it, but they're able to give me a high level in relation to our value proposition, why they would be excited to sell our, our software. I suppose to be successful as a, as a sales development rep, you need a couple of things, right? But I think you need... You need to be really, really resilient, okay? You're going to get 100 no's in a day, and you need to be able to bounce back from those no's. You need to put them to one side and move on. Absolutely. You need to have a really big engine in terms of activity. Nobody ever dreamed of being a sales development rep, right? These guys see it as a stepping stone to getting to become an account executive, right? But I want people that are fully aware of what they're getting into, what the role entails in terms of, in order to be successful, you need to look at it like a funnel, right? So there has to be at the top of the funnel, in order, you need really, really high activities in terms of the amount of calls you make, the amount of emails that you send. And the brass tacks of it are that in sales development, you are measured by your activities. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I'm going to get into that in a sec, right, in terms of activity drives results, right? And, and it's really the behavior, right, of, of kind of how people approach that activity. But I get a little nerdy on you here, right? So so in book, I'll never hire a bad salesperson again, right? Christopher Croner lists drive, which you absolutely succinctly kind of um, gave us how, a kind of a few, few lines on how important that is to you, right? It's the most important trait, right? That's common to the DNA of nearly all successful salespeople, right? And funny enough, when being interviewed, right, top performance salespeople versus average salespeople list this, right? 81%, right, of top salespeople say being driven is very important to sales success. 
Whereas it's a much lower number for average salespeople. Average salespeople say, 40, 47% of average salespeople say that that being driven is very important to success, you know? Yeah. So, so you can see the difference there in, in terms of that drive, right? And I suppose my question is, how do you guys, how do you spot that? Like you must, uh, at the top of your kind of talent funnel, right? You, you must, you know, talk to a bunch of people. You're looking for somebody with drive, and you know it's sometimes it's hard to spot that right like how do you spot that i will you know you look for i suppose areas that they've other areas in their life that they've overachieved in and that that can be in college it can be sports it can be you know i'm just looking to see something okay tell me something that you're passionate about and then i want to see okay so and tell me how you became successful at that and I'm looking to hear, well, I practiced, I practiced, I practiced, or, you know, I, I didn't take no for an answer. And, I, you know, I was able to get to the top of the students' union and stuff like that. That they, They've been successful in other areas of their life and that they've worked for it, that they've set themselves goals. Drive isn't something you can teach necessarily, right? You know, you either have it or you don't have it. You know, you can have all the academics and I believe you can learn sales. I absolutely do. And any well-run well-managed organization has a system systematized process that's very very scalable what you can't do is teach someone to want to be there right it's too ingrained it's too much in their dna when i was a hiring manager one of the questions i used to like to ask was tell me an example from your own experience of where you faced adversity you were maybe hemmed in by a process or you were you know locked in with uh, what seemed like a difficult outcome to achieve and how you thought creatively to overcome that and tell me about the result. And what I'm looking for is their eye movement almost, if we're doing a face-to-face or even over Zoom, I'm looking for them to look up to the left where it's accessing memory, where you know they're not bullshitting you, right? They're actually showing you an example and walking you through it. Have you guys used similar questioning techniques or are there specific questions you guys like to ask in interviews? Yeah, it's just funny you say that, right? Because I, I, like, I'm really, really transparent in interviews, right? And I love people that ask me, how will I be successful in the role? Sometimes what I might actually do is, you know, in an interview, I will just, you know, at the beginning, I'll introduce myself and then I'll say to the person, I'll just flip it on the head. I'll just say, you must have a ton of questions about the company, about the role. Let's start with that. I'm looking to see, you know, I suppose the intelligence and uh, around the questioning, you know, uh, do they want to know about our win rate percentages or AOVs, you know, or from, from a sales development, do they want to know how many calls are expected to make in a day? And what I'll tend to do is, you know, or other KPIs, right? And what I'll tend to do is I will say, I'll make absolutely no bones about it in terms of this is what you need to be uh, in order to be, this is what you need to do rather in order to be successful in this role. And I'll add 10% onto whatever KPIs we have. And I look them in the eye and to see mm-hmm. if they're up for the fight here or not. Because then, you know, because I, I owe it to them to be as transparent as possible in relation to what is going to make them successful. Then, so there's, you know, so there's, we've got this, this understanding when they're coming into the role, what's expected of them. I'm a big fan of that. And, and I'm glad that you honed in on that, right, as, as one of the major contributing factors, right, to kind of, that you look at, right, to see if someone's going to be successful, you know, because let's face it, right, you know, at a junior role, if you're an SDO or a BDO, right, like you can't have done a whole lot in your life sometimes, you know, like sometimes you're fresh out of college or maybe, you know, you've had a, a year under your belt in terms of tenure, right, at another organization. And there's not like a whole shit ton of demonstrable evidence, right? Yeah. That you've been through a, a ton of battles, right? And you've kind of, you've figured out a blueprint, right? Of how to kind of add value to someone's life, right? But if you have the drive, 
then I think that's hugely important, right, in, in order to be able to kind of, you know, see it through and make your way through. So I have a quick question. What have you done or what do you do, right, if you hire somebody who you feel is, you know, really driven and they're ready to rock and roll and then it ends up like you're you're pretty much dragging or your managers or your directors are pretty much dragging them behind them and the writing seems to be on the wall after like week one or week two. Kind of what do you do then? What ha- What happens or what have you done? You know, and I suppose this is where that kind of, you know, that my, my process comes into play, right, in relation to the, the, the other other factors that I would look at. But to answer your question, I think you need to be really honest with yourself in relation to, you know, a bad hire and why they're a bad hire. Is it something that you missed out on? Or, you know, were they bullshitting you sure. during the interview process, which happens all the time, obviously. And then you need to, particularly in Ireland, you know, and particularly in Europe, right, with the way our, our employee law works, right, you need to make the decision early, you know, if you're going to exit this person. Or, or I couldn't agree with you more. Like, it's bad enough making a bad hire, right? And everybody does it. It, it happens, right? But what's absolutely worse than that, right, is keeping a bad hire. The worst thing you can do, right? Right. For them as well, by the way, because if you have somebody in there that's dragging their heels, that's, you know, not taking coaching, not doing their KPIs, they're not happy in the role, you know? You're doing nobody a service by keeping them there and postponing the inevitable almost. I suppose you've touched on an interesting area there uh, in terms of that hunger piece we just alluded to earlier where it's like, okay, I really want this. And I've had a couple of examples in my career of guys who had just massive levels of hunger but they didn't have a value set that was congruent with the organization. Like from your own perspective, Dunahee, you've mentioned their transparency, which is certainly a key value I have. And I think it unites the team. It's like, okay, if I'm an open book, everyone knows we're all shooting for the same thing. But I guess, do you have a specific set of immovable values that you insist your team have? And maybe some of the questions that will allow you to kind of uncover that in the process, be it interview or be it throughout the kind of um, the course of, of, of working with that person. I suppose another, you know, another key attribute that I'm looking for is likability of the candidate. I want to know that they're going to, you know, that they're, they're, they're a good skin, right? That they're going to get on with the rest of the team, that they'll integrate well, and that they're coachable. Really, really, really important, particularly for, you know, for, for sales development reps, right? This is their first job, right? They know less than nothing about technology sales what it takes to be successful and the, the, you know the, a lot of them will know very little about your products about SaaS, but about the industry so they need to be like an absolute sponge in relation to taking coaching on board and and i'll tell you what what we've seen now right with the with the current crisis right is you need people who are coachable and who are agile and who are you know able to pivot and able to diversify in terms of their efforts I think that's key. And I have never met, certainly an American multinational ever, that will hire somebody who isn't uh, of that ilk. So somebody who can look at themselves and go, is this me? And I often think a lot of the world's arguments and animosity and challenges even at a you know, socioeconomic and a political level could be, could be solved if people looked at themselves and go, do you know what? It might be me here, lads. Is it my fault? You know, Is there something I haven't done or I've missed that'll make this 
progress and get the outcome that we all want. And if, if people can have that kind of inward focus and self-awareness, yeah. I really feel that, you know, it, it, it's what drives the team towards a mutual goal. It's just that one thing that helps us all to kind of go, okay, you know, it might be me and let's not be the stubborn guy who won't, uh, you know, engage with anybody else with meaningful dialogue to actually get this thing over the line. And that type of introspection is is really important. And it's back to your point, Dunnick, I think about the coaching, right? So your sales managers, your sales directors, it, like I can't stress how important it is, right, for, for them to get continual, for everybody in an organization, right, to, to get continual coaching. The point is that that has to be received, right, or people have to have the ability, right, to receive that coaching, right, the, the way that it's meant, right, for the betterment of individuals and in turn, right, the the betterment of an organization. You know, there's a good read I recommend for all sales leaders called Rookie Smarts. And the core concept of, of the book really is that sometimes it's a benefit being as green as the grass, you know, because as long as you have coachability, because there's a sense, a constant sense of curiosity, you know, about various things. And, you know, you look at processes and you look at everything and you go, hold on a minute. Why is that still in place? If these are the results that I'm seeing, surely if we did this and this and this, and that constant sense of curiosity helps organizations improve their processes is what I feel, you know, because the danger is you get somebody that's really set in their ways. And, you know, you mentioned Dell, right? There's a whole load of people that have never evolved, right? Yeah. From, from from some of those organizations and they still do things the same way and they're not open, right, to coaching. They're not open. Like they seem like they are, right? And they seem like they're attentive, right? But they always revert back to what they know. And, you know, they never bring anything back, back to the campfire to share because they assume that everybody knows it already. So that curiosity piece, yeah, is that something as well that you look for, I'm sure, right, in people that, you know, they have a constant sense of curiosity about the role and the job and the process and how it works? Because, like, you, your stuff is quite complex, right, in terms of helping people to automate workflows and all of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, and that's why quite often I will, I, I will flip the interview on its head and have right. people ask the questions first. Just it shows me two things, right? It shows me, as 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 you alluded to there, how curious they are about the role, right? But it also I want to see that these guys have done a, a shitload of research yeah. about a company, and that they're able to then ask intelligent questions, either about our technology or about our processes, you know, or, or that they're genuinely curious about the company that they say that they want to join in terms of where we've come from, how have we been successful, where are we headed to. And we can have, and I want to see that I can have a, I can have a grown-up conversation with this person because, because ultimately, what you're looking to see is, you know, is this person going to be a good representation, rep- representative of our company? Am I happy to put this person on the front line to speak with, you know, with with our leads that have cost us so much to attain, or our customers that are so valuable to us? No, is this person going to be a good representative? How do you help people get up to speed in terms of the onboarding stuff, right? So I'm I'm sure there's certain KPIs for you, right, that reinforce that this person is a good hire, right? Because it's, you know, time to ramp or time to first sale or, you know, what are the KPIs you use, right, to kind of look at how aligned, right, your onboarding is to people's actual productivity, you know? Yeah, I'd say we look to have people, uh, we do a, a boot camp after two weeks, right? So typically, we'll either do that boot camp in the US or we'll do it in Dublin. We kind of take an alternative months, right? 
and there's a certification process at the end of that bootcamp. I love that. I love that. Most most onboarding, right, that I have witnessed, right, and this is in quite mature organizations, right, there, there's no certification process. What, right. what it is really is it's done, right? You know, from a management perspective, well, I've done it. That guy has participated in it. But, like, I, I've no real gauge, right, as to whether how much of it sank in or, you know, what needs reinforcement or whatever, you know. So that's really cool. I, I, I like that. I like that. And it's, it's, it's quite tough as well, right? And, and, and by design, okay? You know, we want to get people out of their comfort zones. We want to really, really challenge them. And because, again, they're going to be speaking to our, you know, really, really valuable leads and our really important customers, right? So we want, we need to ensure that they, you know, that they're, they're, they're professional in their approach, that they know what they're talking about, that they're able to understand our customers' business pains and how we can address those pains, and so with the, with, the, with the certification process that we have in place, we kind of take it from the full sales cycle in terms of, right, you know, we, we get them to write out, you know, a prospecting cold email, right? We'll score them on that, right? Right through to the first call. We'll measure them on the first call in terms of the kind of questions that they ask, how well they listen to the prospect, how well they understand the prospect's pains. Then we'll have a second call, right, which is, again, goes deeper in the pains, right? Then we'll actually have a demo, from that, we're looking to see how well they can, uh, how well they can manage and own a meeting, if you like, and then make sure that they are addressing the business issues that the customer is facing in terms of how our technology, you know, the business impact that our technology has around those issues. Who owns this process, by the way, in your organization, right? Is it HR? Is it sales, right? Or is it sales enablement? Or kind of who takes full ownership for this process? Uh, sales enablement. Okay. And so, so then that must run into kind of, you know, uh, subsequent phases of enablement, right? To help people get better and better and better. Yeah. So what, what I would say to you, right, that the secret to a good bootcamp and the secret to a good certification process is that it only starts when the person is finished and actually on the phones, right? Okay. There has to be constant reinforcement because we cannot expect people to just, you know, do a, you know, to, to go to San Diego or wherever it might be and do it, you know, do a boot camp and then come back and then to start delivering straight away, right? You know, there's obviously a ramp period and all that kind of stuff, right? But our, the expectation is with the managers that the managers spend a huge amount of time listening to calls, side-by-side -side coaching, debriefs after big bigger calls listening to demos it's really really key that there's constant reinforcement talk to us about that structure a little bit in terms of how you go to market right so like you got a management structure there obviously right and then you probably have business development or sales development or lead development or whatever you guys call them right and then inside sales outside sales what does that structure look like and like how many how many people what's the ratio of people per manager and you know that kind of thing yeah, we're extremely lucky as an organization. We receive, you know, a huge amount of inbound inquiries from mm -hmm. our website, you know, people downloading trials of our software. And so what our, our structure is, we have kind of a, a sales development team. Okay, we've got about, we've got, I think we've got 10 SDRs and they are qualifying inbound leads. They then pass, we've got two, this is now just in the, in the EMEA office, right? We've got two account executive teams, right? So we have, I'm, I'm hesitant to say it, but I'll say it anyway, right? We've got your traditional hunter-farmer model, 
Yeah. But we've got a, a team of account executives who deal with new business only. And then we have, a, and then as soon as a prospect signs a contract with us, they are, they are then worked by our account management team who are responsible for ensuring deployment is as smooth as it can be, ensuring that, um, that adoption rates are as high as possible and, and you know, helping with upsell, cross-sell of opportunities. So what's the ratio of these? So, so most of your stuff, right, is, is inbound, right? Because again, you know, I'd imagine you guys do free trials and, you know, your typical kind of process, right, for, you know, easy to try, easy to buy, all that kind of stuff, right, for, for software as a service. So the ratio of the, your, your qualifiers, right, let's just call them qualifiers, right, to account executives. How many SDRs or BDRs are feeding the account executives? This is one of the nuances of working in EMEA though, right? It depends on the region and on the languages support. Very right? good, very yeah. good, yeah. It's a key good. point. And I think for, our, for our, our guys who may be listeners in the US, can you just maybe take us through that? So we're a very much a heterogeneous market here in EMEA. And for, for those who don't know, EMEA is Europe, Middle East and Africa. What we found is that obviously uh, you mentioned it earlier, and I've had this experience as a sales leader as well. DAC in some cases made up forty uh, percent of my number. The UK could be as much as that as well, and then everything else is the difference. So you're talking Dutch, you're talking French, Spanish, Portuguese. We touched on earlier, and it's this kind of mix of all of these different languages, which may have a higher overhead. And by the way, there's different tax laws in each of those respective countries in terms of you know VAT, you know. Uh, Corporation tax is a, a subject for another day, but it may actually be more expensive. And, and you know, not all the countries in EMEA uh, use the euro, for example. It's only the ones in the EU. And even within that, there's only a selection of countries that have adopted it. Can you maybe take us through some of those challenges you've had as a leader trying to kind of translate that message to a global context in a very kind of disparate and heterogeneous marketplace? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, I, I've worked in a, in a few US multinationals now, right, at this stage. And this is the one constant in that you, as, as, an, as, as, as a leader in EMEA, you have to really shade from the rooftops just to make it known and, and understood about the different nuances in your region. Because what, 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 what you can find sometimes is that, uh, um, particularly if you're HQs in, in the US, right, that they kind of, uh, you know, that, that the intricacies, shall we say, of working in EMEA can be lost. Toughest thing you'll find is, we touched on it earlier, is getting talent with the various languages. And this is the number one reason that a lot of these, a lot of tech companies are setting up in Dublin, because Dublin is just a melting pot of different nationalities. And you've got, you've got your transient tech workers now coming to Dublin, right, with the view of starting their career within technology with all these different languages. And this is, I believe, the number one reason. It's the access to that multinational talent within Dublin. This is the number one reason that, that, you know, that makes Dublin such an attractive place, Dublin and Ireland, such an attractive place to set up. And the corporate yeah. tax rate doesn't, doesn't, um, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't, doesn't get in the way either, either right? No, yeah. it, it certainly doesn't get in the way, no. But, you know, even with, with, without the tax rate, right, you can have, you know, as favorable a tax rate as you like, right, but without Fair the tax, it's, it's no good. Yeah, absolutely. And there's plenty of yeah. other examples of jurisdictions in this part of the world which have a 0% corporation tax rate. And for those of us uh, on the uh, podcast, the corporation tax rate in Ireland is 12.5%, which is very very much that halfway house between your zero percent 
it's probably going to be investigated by by somebody at some point in the future versus your kind of 25 to 30 percent that you would see in in the uk and central europe so i think we're a nice halfway house and i think you made a key point there around talent and i know the ida and for instance the irish development authority who, who are a good government institution one of the few i respect who do a good job of promoting ireland as a uh, a platform for technology in europe is that talent piece as well it's one of their T's they, they really speak about. And we've created this kind of ecosystem. There's plenty of people with languages in, in the UK, for example, but they don't have that same kind of ecosystem. Like we have Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, HubSpot, Salesforce, uh, you name it, they're all here. And it's this like kind of movable talent pool that people tend to rotate. And you also made a great point earlier that there's a small, small community and everyone knows each other. And um, that's particularly true in, in Ireland in general. We're quite a parochial society, but also within the context of tech. And I think success breeds success there as well. So I suppose if you're somebody who is looking to attract somebody here to, let's take Reich, what is it that you know you you guys can bring to the attention of talent? Because it's at a premium, right? I mean, there's a lot of guys out there who are German speakers who who may be good or maybe average, how do you kind of sell that message for, I suppose, Ireland at one level we talked about, but also, you know, right, talk us through right and, you know, your value prop in this marketplace. As we, as we spoke about earlier, we're looking for driven people. And, the, you know, what driven people are looking to do is they're looking to progress their career. So what we can offer people is really the opportunity to grow their career within a fast paced company that's on a, you know, really, you know, open to the right growth, growth trajectory. Mm-hmm. You know, if, I, if I think about my own org, we had our, you know, we had our sales kickoff there um, in January and the statistic that hit out the most at me and, you know, something that I'm really, really proud of is that 35% of my sales org was promoted in the last 12 months. Excellent. Right. So what we're looking to do is, you know, and what we've done a really, really good job in is building a career path. Be it from you know from SDR to account executive, and we kind of we've we've segmented you know different levels of account executive, or they may want to go to account manager. We've got different levels of account manager. We've also got a renewals customer success team. It's kind of if you put in the effort, work work hard, the returns are there, and not just economical, but like you know, but in terms of building your career and climbing the ladder and, a pretty, and what, what you'll find is a lot of people like younger people today are looking to really, really move fast within the company. And so what, you know, one of my biggest challenges is setting the right expectations for people into, because they're coming knocking on my door after six months saying, I want to move up. I want to move up. You know, sure. what we've had to do is really set proper expectations in terms of you need to be in a certain role for a certain length of time before you can be considered to move up. It's a constant conversation, actually, myself and Ross have in terms of the kind of, you know, B2B climate today, as opposed to, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, where it's kind of, it's not a case of where, you know, somebody comes in the door, you you give them a list and they belt through the calls or, you know, they have a load of inbound and they qualify that stuff. The environment has become very complex, you know, and it's, it's, it's much harder to help people understand value right in terms of what you guys bring to the table over somebody else right over your competitors right and you know it's difficult enough to get somebody's attention as well right but not only that right is that you got to show people the impact of kind of what your solution is doing in their business environment and that is not an easy thing to do it takes a long time right for people to get fluent right 
in their ability right to to actually help people that they're speaking to navigate through through that complexity you know so expectation is hugely important i agree with you because what what i found is that the expectations are all kinds of wrong sometimes when people come into an organization and they want to be in the next role you know in 6 months time but the reality is it takes a minimum of 18 months i i feel anyway for someone to really boss a SURBDR type role a qualifier type role in order to to be kind of confident and capable right to do the next role what what kind of time frames are you seeing or what expectations do you, do you guys set yeah and i couldn't agree more with you and actually what what i've seen in the past is that if you move somebody too quickly you're actually doing them a disservice right because mm. they they may not be ready for the role they fail in the role and then you're having difficult conversations and it's you know and this could be a good person right and the reason that they're failing is that you've moved them too quickly because as you say, it's that kind of that business acumen that you can only right. really learn and develop through, you know, through tenure. Because you can't have somebody straight out of college, you know, have them doing a BDO role for six months and then move them into a closing role and expect them to understand executive priorities and business impacts after only six months as, as a BDO, right? Do so, your account managers actually do any prospecting? Just just while, while, while you mention it there, do they do any prospecting or, or do they just tackle kind of whatever your terminology is. I'm sure it's kind of like sales qualified leads or QLs or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So at the moment, they are, the account executives do not, right? Okay. Okay. They are only working on inbound leads. We do have, we have a higher segment, right, of uh, enterprise. We have an enterprise team, um, which is 10,000 employees and above. These guys are more experienced. They've been around the block, a lot more tenure, right? And they do their own prospecting. But they'd probably have an assigned set of accounts as well, would they? They do. They have kind of a hybrid role, yes. Right, okay. Yes. okay. They, have, they have an assigned set of accounts and they've proper, you know, they've built out proper territory plans in which they've said, right, I'm going to get X amount of revenue from my account base, X amount from prospecting net new myself and a very, very small amount of revenue then from um, inbound leads. Yeah, am I wrong in saying that kind of, Younger generation of folks coming into organizations, right, s- seem to think, right, that their career path belongs to somebody else, i.e. their manager or somebody else to show them, right, how, how they can get to a particular position, as opposed to the accountability of owning their own career path and saying, hey, you know, what are the milestones? What do I need to do? And what extracurricular stuff do I need to show, right? And what's, you know, what, what are the responsibilities do I need to show to, to, to kind of help me to kind of get into that role or this role or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a, a, a fair point and a, a fair observation, shall we say, right? So what's really good there and what I find works really well is I would have the individual contributors to create their own development plan. Right. Because as you say, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for their manager. Hey, you know, I'm here 12 months. You tell me I get promoted after 12 months. I would actually, you know, when somebody wants after, you know, we can start having this conversation after somebody being in six months in a row. And I would say, OK, let's put in place a development plan um, and I'll give them a template to help them to create it. But they would create their own milestones. And the only way this works is right. If, if these milestones need to obviously be challenging and somewhat aspirational. But then, you know, you can have these conversations, you would have development plan meetings, then you can have one of these twice a month, right, where you would sit down, look at the development plan together, see how the individual is tracking against the goals that they've set themselves. 
And you quickly can see then if somebody's serious about moving to the next level or not. And I think that's a key point about how organizations are managed in general. And part of the, we talked about this in the interview process as well. And we talked about folks who are institutionalized in an organization. And I suppose for me, it comes down to, do you want a job or do you want a career? And, and as John mentioned there, who owns that? I'm ultimately responsible for my own success. And I don't think there's any other discipline in the world that that's more true for than sales uh, in terms of determining your own success. But I think the key the key thing that I've learned that versus working in an SME or a small kind of maybe a family-run business, et cetera, is the, the Americans rarely get it wrong. They know how to grow an organization and they know what repeatable and scalable success looks like. And that development plan is absolutely key. And, and I think, you know, if you are to instill that in your people and have them say it to you. I, I did pro coach myself in Dell and um, pro sell. You, you may remember it, Dunica, from your days there as well. And it's this idea of drawing out. It's like, you tell me what success looks like. You tell me where you're going to be. And okay, well, how do we reverse engineer that process in order to get there? And it's, it's the same in the sales process in terms of the lead funnel itself. It's just from a people perspective. I suppose, what would you say has made the difference in, in your own team in terms of that rock star? Like what's been a, a trait or a series of traits for people who've really kind of owned and excelled at that? And, and, and obviously we want to balance off, you know, somebody's moving too soon versus becoming too stagnant. So what, what would you say kind of, because these guys are also going to get hit up by other organizations with by recruiters like ourselves, et cetera. We need to find that right person. So what, what would you say made that difference in terms of that career progression, that 35%? And even within that 35%, you mentioned there, Donica, who's going to be the ultimate, who's going to be a sales leader in the future? And why do you see that now? Yeah, so who's going to be a sales leader? I, like, I genuinely believe it's, you know, people that enjoy the coaching aspect around sales, who enjoy helping people. Right. Because, you know, it's that coaching aspect that really makes the difference. You know, are, are you going to have a, so you have some sales managers that like sitting there and, you know, on Excel and crunching the numbers all day? Sure. Or are you going to be the sales manager who's going to sit down side by side, listening to your reps, understanding the challenges that they're facing, you know, working with them together to try and overcome those challenges and also really understanding the people on your team? What motivates them? What challenges are, are, are they facing, as I said there? What plans are you going to put in place for, to help them develop as individuals? It's all, it's, it's that, but it's that coaching piece, right, that you can't really fake. But this is what you're going to have to do on a Monday morning when it's piss and rain out, you know. I suppose the unglamorous part of the job, right? It's that kind of helping at the top of the funnel. Yeah, also, you've got lots of sales managers out there that will come in and help close a deal in relation to just the commercials, right? Like closing a deal for me is the easiest part. You know, you, you kind of brought the, per, the the sales rep has brought the, the deal to a certain level, right? And then, you you know, you come in, you swoop in and take all the glory by closing, right? And just giving a, you know, offering some favorable commercials or something like that. Sure. Right? Where the real help is done is listening into the discovery calls, you know, listening into the first demos, looking through presentations that your reps are doing, etc. Really okay. understanding how they're communicating with their prospects and with their customers, you know, do they have a real understanding of the business issues and the pains that your prospects are feeling? Are they really able to differentiate your solution from the competition? Have you? Yeah, I guess it comes down to the BANT, the, the IBM uh, sales methodology. Have you established a budget? Do you know who the authority is? Yeah. 
really those pains you know have you gone in deep to them and 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 what's the timeline I mean why now why not six months ago or why not six months from now and you know when I was at HubSpot I think they they did a great job from a sales qualification perspective of actually putting a metric beside each of them one to three what's the severity of that particular thing you've identified let's just not take what's given let's dive deeper into that and I think you made a key point there around something that doesn't seem intuitive around the closing being the easiest part because most people think getting the revenue in is the uh, the hardest part. But actually, if you've done a good job of, you know, really disseminating down to why it is we're here at where we are and that there are no surprises, then that's actually harder work to get to that point, right? I think, I think you know, you mentioned earlier that inbound leads form the crux of what a lot of your guys do. So, you know, that could go either way. It's, it could be there's a massive demand for your product, which I don't doubt that there is, but it's also quite easy to download a free trial and not do anything with it. So I think, I think what you're saying there is the grunt work is done in that middle piece and that qualification around whether it's real or not. Is that kind of your assessment? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, from, from an inbound lead perspective as well, it's more difficult to own the sales process. Because what we find is, you know, we're in a hyper competitive market. If, if somebody's finding our software through SEO, right, you can bet mm-hmm. that they're finding four other vendors as well. Sure. So a couple of things are key to us, right? It's, it's first to respond. You know, we need to be, we need to be um, our speed to lead is of the utmost importance. But also we need to be able to differentiate ourselves from a lot, from in, in a hyper competitive market, as I say. And we need to be able to do that quickly and in this, within the sales process. And, and how do we do that, right? Well, we do that, you know, I suppose by demoing any true differentiators that we may have, right, from, from our key competitors within EMEA. And I, I, we, like, typically we do, a, we do a good job at that, right? But then, you know, we need to put in place really strong mutual action plans with our customers as well. And, with our and hold your customers accountable to that. Like they've got to give, get, right? You, I, I suppose from my own perspective, when I was at HubSpot, we had a, a couple of key KPIs that we stuck to. They were how many initial assessments did you do? So it's kind of a qualification call where you're giving out some value, showing some steerage and how they can solve this problem, giving away some resources. And then there was the demo call. But you didn't get to, and nobody was granted a demo because you expressed an interest in our product you had to earn it as a prospect which is kind of a weird a weird concept but the most expensive thing that a rep has is their own time and their time is just as valuable as yours so if we're going to go through this process together we're going to need to make sure that we each have something in it that is earned right that you don't just get a demo for the sake of a demo because i've seen so many organizations fail with that they're just so hungry to get on the demo but actually they're not actually qualifying if the buyer's on the phone if they actually can implement this have they done this before etc have you had that experience Dominic? yeah that's we've very much a quid pro quo model right and that is the number one issue that we face and that you know because you may have somebody further down the pecking order shall we say right who's doing the initial evaluation and this person has absolutely zero, they may even have zero influence, right? But they've certainly got zero buying capabilities. And you doing a demo to this person is not going to move this deal along at all. The salespeople need to realize that their time is extremely valuable, that the software that we have and the software that lots of other companies are offering is extremely valuable as well in terms of making companies more productive, making companies more efficient, et cetera. And what we try to do is we will only do really tailored and specific demos. But in order for us to do that, as I say, we need to put a ton of resources into it. And so we will ask for certain things in return, like having the decision maker at that demo, 
because I've, you know, very, very seldom do you see somebody will sign off on X amount of software sure. if they haven't actually seen a demo of the, of the software themselves. No, absolutely. I fully agree with that. And it's completely okay to say no to people and say, look, I don't think this is a right fit for you and have them justify their perspective and go, no, actually, here's why it's important. And, and if it means enough to them, they'll get that other person on the phone because it's that important to them and what they're doing rather than ticking box in terms of evaluating something without actually demonstrating the value to the business and, and what it will bring and why they're having that conversation rather than just being a kind of a tick the box exercise. Okay, well, look, gentlemen, I, uh, I think we're going to wrap up here at this point. I suppose one of the key questions I like to ask at the, uh, at the end is, how would you define the crack? What is it for you and your team? And what's, what's it for us as a platform in a country in an EMEA context? For, for us as a country, I think what you'll find is you'll find, you know, a highly educated, highly ambitious, highly driven workforce and the beauty of it is we don't take ourselves too seriously. And, and what that amounts to is people who are highly coachable, who you will enjoy working with, right? Because obviously, you know, you'll spend a lot of hours in work, but who are results orientated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not, not afraid to have the humor, but know that balance between, you know, work life and Putting in the uh, the effort yields the results as well. And I think we've kind of built our brand on that basis as a country. And um, I'll never forget one of the uh, first sales meetings I was in with an American expat here on secondment, and he was like, "Could you please tell me what the update is in this deal?" And the, the rep replied, "Well, he was from the, the depths of Leitrim, said, well, crack with your man here is the horse ain't moving until next week.' And he he just looked bemused. The sales leader had no idea what he just said, if it was in fact even English. But it's just our colloquial way of kind of explaining where cer- certain things are and, and kind of how we have a handle on it and build rapport with ourselves as a community almost. Yeah, yeah. All right, gents. Thank you very much for your time this morning. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining. Uh, look forward to uh, the next edition. You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.